a warning label. I, I think they have them on pillow, a warning label. I, I think they have them on pillow. I have a warning label attached, and there is a group in Michigan that has an annual contest for the wackiest warning labels. And uh, here's, here's the winner from a number of years back, uh, Danger Avoid Death. I thought, I thought that one was rather subtle, um, that, that one. The, the runner-up was this one. This is an iron-on thing, uh, like for your children's t-shirt, and the warning label is, do not iron while wearing shirt. I thought, that was also some really good advice. And uh, the third place winner was on the back of this children's thing, you know, like you push around at a grocery store or Walmart or something like that. It says, do not put child in bag. <laughs> now, who would ever put a child in the bag, right? These things may be more useful than we think. I found a couple others that I'll share with you. Um, I thought that one was really glad to know that, uh, that you shouldn't swallow the hanger. And then this one's a little more subtle. You'll have to pay really close attention, but it's helpful. This is, this is from a vet, I assume. It's for a dog. His name's Parker, and it says, may cause drowsiness. Alcohol may intensify this with a care, operate with care when operating a car or dangerous machinery. So watch your dog if you're going to give him alcohol and let him drive your car while he's on this medication. Um, of course, not all warning labels are, are so absurd. Um, and friends, evidently we have an issue with our light over there. Guys, you can just let it buzz if you want. Um, it's been rigged with duct tape. There we go. Good to have tall people in the church. Thank you, Carter. Um, hope you can see better over there now, Sam, since the, the light has stayed on, but the annoying buzzing has stopped. But anyway, uh, warning labels are not all so absurd and useless. For instance, uh, or, or warnings generally, I guess. Um, back in 2003, uh, there was a series of um, wildly dangerous wildfires in Southern California. They eventually claimed two dozen lives. Um, the article says that flames moved at a speed faster than people could flee. And there were some complaints. Some residents did not receive enough warning. And uh, there's a man named Sergeant Grace, and he said, we're begging people to leave, and they don't take us seriously. They want to pack some clothes or fight it in the backyard with a garden hose. They don't seem to understand that this is unlike any fire we've seen. If people don't move fast, they're going to, in his words, become charcoal briquettes. Um, fellow that lived in that area, jo John Smaldridge, he says he frantically warned his neighbors only to have some disregard him or respond too casually. He told of those who tried to save their televisions and computers before escaping. He said, they looked like they were packing for a trip. The ones who listened to me and left the area lived. The ones who didn't died. Now, the book of Hebrews 
is notorious for a handful of sobering warning passages. And in chapter 2, we encounter the first of them, and it reads like this. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, he says. Don't, don't drift away from Jesus. Exercise extreme care not to drift away from Jesus and his message. Um, that's our warning for today, and I'd like to pray for us as we receive that this morning and consider what it means for us. So bow with me in prayer, would you please? Father, your kindness comes to us this morning in severe, um, strong words of warning. I believe this is, this is written for our good and an expression of your love for us. And so I pray that you would give us spirit-given attention to these words and to our lives in light of it. Um, Lord, take, take my words and use them to lift up your words so that we can see and hear them all the more. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, the warning passage starts with that little word, therefore. And it's always good to say, what is the therefore, therefore? And what it does is it takes us back to what is just preceded in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews. And in the first chapter, we've seen that God speaks to us through His Son. It starts this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And it goes on to describe the Son this way, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There's a famous kind of a parable, and it's an attempt to explain how all religions have part of the truth. Maybe you've heard it. There's six blind men and an elephant, right? And um, one blind man touches the belly of the animal. He thinks it's a wall. Here's, here's a good visual of it. Another blind man grabs the elephant's ear and thinks he's touching a fan. Third blind man touches the tail, thinks he's holding a rope, and on they go, each grabbing a part of the elephant without any one of them knowing what, it's really, what they really feel, what, what the whole elephant is really like. The point of the story is that we're all blind men when it comes to God. 
We know part of him, but we don't really know who he is. We're all just grasping in the dark, thinking we know more than we do. And the writer of the Hebrews says, that is not true. That is not the case. Jesus, he says, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus, he is saying, has shown us the Father. We are not blind men groping at some mythical elephant. Jesus is creator and sustainer of the universe. He makes God known to us. He makes purification for our sins. He is, as we saw, maker, revealer, and savior. The very son of God. And as such, he is superior to the angels. This is the teaching of chapter 1 of Hebrews, right? We saw that Jesus' name is greater than the angels. His honor is greater than the angels. His existence is greater than the angels. His status is greater than the angels. Jesus, in every conceivable way, is greater than the angels. And because of that truth, the author of Hebrews in chapter 2 is now telling us that Jesus' message is greater than the angels. Therefore, he says at the beginning of of chapter 2. Therefore, because all that is true, because God has spoken through his son, and he's so much greater than the angels, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention. The New American Standard Bible says we must pay much closer attention. We must therefore, according to the Holman Christian Standard Bible, we must pay even more attention. The New International Version says we must pay the most careful attention. The King James says we must give the more earnest heed. And of course, the Pigeon Bible says us guys got to think plenty about all the stuff we went here so that we don't forget them. Tink plenty. Pay attention. Focus. Don't be cavalier. Don't be indifferent. Don't be casual. Pay closer, much closer, more, the most careful attention. And so right out of of the, the blocks, it begs the question, are you? Are you paying this kind of attention to the message of Christ? Recorded in the pages of your Bible? Or are you, or are you simply too distracted? Uh, there was an, an experiment um, that was done a number of years ago by some researchers from Western Washington University with respect to something called inattentional blindness. And they actually clipped money onto a low-hanging tree limb on the university campus and um, watched what would happen. And they, 396 people walked down this path, past the tree limb with the money clipped to it. And uh, only 12 people failed to see and avoid the tree. Okay? Um, 
But most people, it said, fail to see the money in the tree, and 94% of people on a cell phone did not see the money on the tree right in front of them. The authors of the study ended the study with a rather obvious but important conclusion. They simply said, becoming aware of an object is generally assumed to require focused attention. We must pay focused attention to the message of Jesus. It's contained in the scriptures because something more precious than money is at stake. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest, lest we drift away. It's interesting, he says, you know, he, says um, he says, we, we must pay closer attention. The author of Hebrews, whether it's Paul or Luke or Apollos or, or whomever it might be, Barnabas, we don't know, he was a theological heavyweight, right? He's one of the great theologians in the history of the church. He wrote one of the weightiest books of the New Testament, and he says, we, you and me, he says, we. He is in effect saying, I must pay closer attention. There are no exemptions from this command. This is the first command in the book of Hebrews. There are no exemptions from it. You don't get a pass because you have a PhD or because you're a pastor. We'll come back to this, this first command in the book of Hebrews to pay much closer attention, the most careful attention. But just think about this story with me before we leave this idea for now. There's a guy named Erwin Braverman. He's a dermatologist and director of medical residence at Yale Medical School. And he was concerned about his students' power of attention. And so he noticed the high-tech, fast-paced practice of medicine had dethroned careful physical exams and thorough patient histories. And as a result, he feared that doctors were losing their power to observe and pay attention to the obvious. So he had an idea. Braverman thought that these, he took these young doctors to a university museum to expose them to a puzzle they could not solve instantly. A painting. And after learning um, to gaze at and observe a work of art, their ability to describe patients improved dramatically in what is a now mandatory program that Braverman and museum curator created. Yale medical students each examine a painting for 15 minutes and then discuss their observations with a guide and their peers. And they're told, look at the normal, not just the eye-catching. Approach the work with an open mind, moving past first assumptions. Revisit the subject again and again. He says, we are trying to slow down the students. He says, the artwork is a means to an end. In effect, the painting with its hidden stories becomes a substitute patient for these future doctors. And at Harvard medical school, students given eight hours of similar training produced nearly 40% more observations and offer more sophisticated, accurate notations on a visual skills exam than those who have not enrolled in this art observation course. 40%. You cannot pay the closest attention to Jesus and his message at a sprint. 
You cannot. If you are hurried and frazzled and busy and running all the time, you cannot pay the attention that the author of Hebrews is required to us. What does it mean for you to tink plenty about the message of Jesus? We'll, we'll come back to that. First, though, the writer wants us to see why we must do this, why we must pay such careful attention to the message that's been given to us. He says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We'll drift. If we don't, we'll drift. If we don't pay much closer attention, we'll drift away from Jesus. We're drifters by nature. There's a cultural and spiritual current that just helps us drift away. It makes sense, I think especially to those of, those of us who are married. Um, things get real busy, we get distracted, we don't pay attention to our spouse for a prolonged period of time, what happens? Marital drift happens, and you start to feel less connected, and you're more easily offended, and things get distant. I think it makes sense if you drive a car. Um, if you're texting and eating and putting on makeup and fiddling with the radio and are generally distracted, what happens? Vehicular drift happens, right? You look up and all of a sudden you wonder, how did I end up here? Um, they said that when you text while driving, the time that you spend with your eyes off the road increases by about 400%, and the average speed in the U.S. is about 55 mile an hour. So if you take five seconds to read a text in that time, it means that the driver travels the length of a football field without looking at the road. And then all of a sudden you look up and you wonder, whoa, how did I end up here? So if you're married, you need to pay attention to your spouse or you'll drift apart. If you're driving, you have to put down your phone and pay attention lest you drift out of your lane. Spiritually, if you don't pay the closest attention to the teaching of Jesus, you'll drift. We are afloat on a river, not a lake. There is a current, and it pulls us away from Christ. You know, I... I uh, I am a non-whitewater kayaker, right? I don't, I don't have these crazy people that's going to roll their kayak and go over waterfalls. I go on lakes. They're flat. They're still. But, you know, even on the lake, if I just sit there, my boat is moved about by the wind and by unseen currents in the lake. I drift away from where I was. Busyness can do that for us spiritually. We just don't have the time. Better put, we just don't take the time to draw near to Christ daily. We're too busy. We're too hurried. We don't have the time. The pursuit of a lifestyle of comfort and gain can do that. Because often that's why we're so busy. We're chasing after the fleeting pleasures, pleasures of newer and better and more. 
Opposition and persecution can do that. It's just easier to go with the flow than to face ridicule for being a follower of Christ or the exclusion of being a follower of Christ or the tension of representing Christ. C.S. Lewis nailed it. He says, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have reasoned, been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Then he says, do not most people simply drift away? Are you drifting? If there is no plateaued option... And you have to pick whether you are either drawing nearer to Christ and his teaching or drifting away from Christ and his teaching. Which would you honestly say describes you? And the writer of Hebrews says, we don't simply drift away from Jesus as troubling as that is. He says, we don't just drift away, we drift to something. He says, we drift to judgment. Look again. Therefore, we, have, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. He says, we are drifting towards a judgment from which there is no escape. And its uh, argument is a little um, convoluted here. It points for us at first reading. He's arguing kind of from the lesser to the greater. And so he says, if the angels declared if the message that the angels declared, and that's, that message is likely a reference to the Old Testament law. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Galatians says, why then the law, the law of Moses? It was added because of transgressions. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Okay. And then the writer of Hebrews says, if that reliable word from God was disobeyed, every act of disobedience to that law was punished. So every disobedience to that Old Testament law was punished. Um, case in point, here's numbers, here's an example of that infraction against the law of punishment from Numbers 15. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Okay, they were supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day. He was working gathering sticks. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. If what the writer of Hebrews is saying is if, if, if that Old Testament law delivered by angels carried that kind of severe retribution for violating it, for disobeying it, how much more the message that Jesus brings? Um, 
Colin Smith helps us think about how this whole lesser to greater thing could work. He says, um, suppose a middle school student punches another student in class. What happens? Okay. The student is given a detention, right? Now, suppose during the detention, the same boy punches the teacher. What happens? The student gets suspended from school. Suppose on the way home, the same boy punches a policeman in the nose. What happens? He goes to jail. Now, suppose some years later, the very same boy is in a crowd waiting to see the President of the United States. As the President passes by, the boy lunges forward to punch the President. What happens? He's shot dead by the Secret Service. He says, in every case, the crime is precisely the same, but the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it is committed. What comes from sinning against God, he says? Answer? Everlasting destruction. And so that same kind of thinking is applied here in the book of Hebrews. Transgress the angels' message, what they bore. That warrants severe retribution. Neglect the message of the Son of God. From that judgment, there is no escape. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And this, this is a reflection of God's very character, His holiness and His justice. Because He is holy and just, He judges sin and evil and unbelief. And Hebrews teaches this um, on, on a number of occasions. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 12, we'll see this. It says, See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. Okay, A reference to God. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Chapter 10, something similar. We know him who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. And the very next verse says, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Tom Schreiner says, in the Old Testament, the punishments were earthly. Israel suffered exile for its sin, but the revelation through the Son is heavenly so that those who reject Him will will receive a more intense punishment, a final and eternal punishment from which there is no exit, no escape. So, the warning comes to us this morning. Be very careful. Pay the closest attention to Jesus and his teaching so that we will not drift away from him and into the severest of judgments. Now, it's possible for you to be thinking this morning, but I'm in church, so I'm good, right? What's interesting, though, is that the book of Hebrews, even though we don't know the specifics, was likely written to a church. The most likely scenario is a small house church somewhere that was undergoing persecution. 
And so the warning is given to the gathered church. There were some among them who were in very real danger of drifting away from Christ and into this more severe judgment he talks about. I don't think we're any different. And again, the writer includes himself in the need to pay closer attention and avoid drifting away. One writer says, warnings are not designed, it's important to remember this, warnings are not designed to rob people of hope, but to steer them away from danger in order to preserve them so they might persevere and inherit what has been promised. So this is an invitation for all of us to take stock of our lives. Am I drifting? I mean, am I, am I drawing near or am I drifting? There, there is no middle ground here. And so in addition to this warning, he gives us another positive reason why we should pay much closer attention to Jesus and to his message. And it's because this message is so trustworthy. Right? He says it this way, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The message and teaching of Jesus. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So what he's saying here is he's buttressing our faith in this message. He said you should trust in this message because it's true and sure and trustworthy for three main reasons. First, it's from the Lord Jesus Himself. It was declared at first by the Lord. This is the teaching and ministry of Jesus himself, not some man-made philosophy. Secondly, it's endorsed by eyewitnesses. He says, it was attested to us by those who heard. The implication is that these people that they're writing to now were not eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus, but it was attested to by eyewitnesses who actually heard Jesus teach these things. People like the apostles, like John and Peter and Andrew and James. It's not mere hearsay. Okay. And lastly, he says, God put his stamp on it with miracles and signs and wonders. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It's the kind of stuff you read about in the book of Acts, right? Healings and deliverances that point to the authenticity of the messenger and his message. And it's interesting, the whole Trinity is involved here in helping us see that this is reliable and true. The Son declares the message. God the Father witnesses to it by miracles, and the Holy Spirit gives these miraculous gifts that witness to it as well. It's a trustworthy message. You can and should pay close attention to it. Pay close attention to it. Let's, let's go back to that idea for a moment and think about how we honor this first command in the book of Hebrews to pay much more close attention to Jesus and his word. And uh, first of all, let me just say, it is going to require on our part 
an active, intentional pursuit. It's going to require planning and time and effort. All of those things will be required. Discipline. The only things that happen without that is we will drift away. If we just kind of let it happen, we'll drift away. He's warning us. We'll drift away. An active, intentional pursuit. It will have to center on reading and reflecting on the Bible. There is no other surer source for the message and teaching of Jesus. To pay attention to his message is to ramp up our engagement with the scriptures so that we could say our life represents this kind of thing from Deuteronomy 6. He says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That the Bible is invading our lives and our reflection and meditation on it is ceaseless. We're paying close attention to it and to our life. It can't just be a Sunday morning thing. This, this isn't enough. Okay. Us guys got to think plenty okay, about Jesus and his teaching. And that will center on reading and reflecting on the Bible. It's going to require sacrifice. Okay. There are things that you will have to give up to do this, things that are competitors, things that are distractions. If you're going to get up early, you're going to have to give up sleep, or you're going to have to give up something at night so you can go to bed early. And some of you honestly may need outside help. The New York Times reports that people spend close to three hours a day looking at their phones. (laughs) Three hours a day looking at their phones, and that excludes the time they spent actually talking on the phone. That's just looking at it, okay? There's a recent survey of smartphone users. Um, About a third of the respondents said that they were constantly checking their smartphones, and a little more than two-thirds said they went to bed with a smartphone by their side, okay? Um, So, People have looked at this and they've come up with aids to help us in this matter, like the no phone, the least advanced phone ever. Um, It is a $12 now on sale for $10 piece of plastic that looks like a smartphone but actually does nothing. No music, no camera, no screen, no no phone. And... uh, There's a guy named Van Gould who's a representative for the company. said he and his partners, they've sold thousands of these things, which they market as a security blanket for people who want to curb their phone addiction but are afraid to leave home without something to hold on to. Okay. Um, And this is, these are the comments from their website. With the no phone, my eye contact skills have improved 73%. Now I can eat food without taking photos of it. Thanks, no phone. 
<laughs> oh, shoot. And if, for, and if 10 bucks is too much, uh, for five bucks, they have the air model. So um, I don't know if that would be as helpful, though. Um, hey, it's going to take a sacrifice for you to pay careful attention to the word. It's going to take time, time that you, you are now spending on your phone or on TV. Um, increasingly, you're going to have set more time aside to enter into God's presence without distraction to read and reflect on the greater message of Jesus. It's in both the Old and New Testaments. Okay. John Piper summarizes this beautifully. He says, the Christian life is first and foremost a life of contemplation. Listening to Jesus, considering Jesus, fixing the eyes of the heart on Jesus. Everything else in the Christian life grows out of this. Without this, the Christian life is simply unlivable. The writer of Hebrews would say, without this, we will drift away. So, real practical help. The next three weeks, our adult classes, our life change classes, in both this hour and the next hour, are going to focus on um, how to spend time meaningfully and engage Jesus okay, on a daily basis. Um, I will speak next week to both the men and the women's together, and then the remaining weeks, they'll split the remaining two weeks, and Stu Bowman and Noah Joyner are going to teach the men, and my wife Stephanie and Amanda Miller and Jen Grady are going to, are going to lead the women. Um, you know, if, if you have the slightest inkling that you're drifting, you should be there. We could summarize the teaching this way, pay closer attention and don't drift away from Jesus and his message for there's no escape for those who neglect such a great salvation. Are you drifting? And perhaps God is prompting you today to swim upstream against the current to a more and more faithful, joyful, obedient, intimate communion with Jesus through his word. And so I would say you should obey that prompting today and you should sit down and start to think, how do I do that? What must I do to stop drifting and to pay more close attention to Jesus and his word? What must I do? What must I change? What must I give up? What must I, must I plan? But it's possible this morning that you are a contented drifter and you are listening to this warning and you're like, when's this done? Can't wait for the game today. Don't bother me with this stuff. I'm good. It's been said that the mark of a true child of God is that they won't drift for long. God won't allow it. He'll poke them and prod them 
And if you are a contented drifter, if you are content to just drift along, even drift away from Jesus, I would urge you to examine your faith and see if you are really, really in the faith or if you're just in the building. We're about to take the Lord's Supper together, and if you are content in your drifting, what you need is not the Lord's Supper. You need the Lord. You need to enter into a genuine relationship of faith and trust and obedience to the maker of the universe, the one who is who's available and has died on the cross to purify your sins, who shows you the Father what God is really like. You need the Lord and his great salvation. Um, let me close with this quote from John Piper as we come to the table. It's a good one, so I'll put it on the screen. He says, only, what is it really, this great salvation? What Hebrews is really saying is, don't neglect being loved by God. Don't neglect being forgiven and accepted and protected and strengthened and guided by Almighty God. Don't neglect the sacrifice of Christ's life on the cross. Don't neglect the free gift of righteousness imputed by faith. Don't neglect the removal of God's wrath and the reconciled smile of God. Don't neglect the indwelling Holy Spirit and the fellowship and friendship of the living Christ. Don't neglect the radiance of God's glory in the face of Jesus. Don't neglect the free access to the throne of grace. Don't neglect the inexhaustible treasure of God's promises. This is a great salvation. Neglecting it is very evil. Don't neglect so great a salvation. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit, give us eyes to see. Our, our lives and our hearts before you. To discern whether whether there are ways, in fact, we are adrift. And while some traditions remain, our heart is being pulled away and our love is growing cold for you. And uh, rescue us from that. Don't let us go where that leads. Give us strength and wisdom and courage. to do what we must to pay careful attention to Jesus, your son, and his message. Help us in this, Lord. Protect us in this. Help us heed your warning today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.